On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people, just like you and me, who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, to be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit Downs with your host, Jenny Anchondo. It's a second shot sit down that's really unlike any we've ever done before. And, and that is the goal, is to just really look at all these different perspectives. Um, I think when we think about second shots, sometimes it's like there are sort of the obvious ones, and then there are those that to me are, are a little bit more um, of an example of outliers, and I find them every bit as fascinating, if not more. So I really think you are going to love this one today, especially if you're somebody who is curious at all about the paranormal. We're going to kind of debunk some myths and talk to somebody who has devoted a large portion of his life to the paranormal. He is Brandon Alvis. He's the co-author of Elements of a Haunting. You may also know him from Ghost Hunters on A&E. Hey, Brandon, good to see you. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Well, so it was really interesting. We talked to you on Morning After about um, during our Halloween show, and it was just kind of like a brief chat about the paranormal, and it was sort of like themed with Halloween and very light. And today I wanted to go a little bit deeper, and this is something that's always been fascinating to me, I'll be honest with you. I've always wondered, like, is this real? Is this true? Can people really connect with, I, I keep calling it the paranormal because I don't know that I have another another word for it, but how did you start to get involved with this and, and start studying, start down on this path? Well, you know, in 1995, I lost a brother to cancer. And in 2004, I lost another brother to suicide. That, mm. So that kind of sent me on my journey into the paranormal. Um, I never really had a paranormal experience per se. It was just more about, you know, having to cope and learn about death at a young age and just thinking about the possibility of the existence of a life after death. And that really got me into that line of thinking and really looking at the bigger picture. So before I actually ever stepped foot into the field, I actually read everything I possibly could about ghosts and hauntings. And then I went out there and started to try and collect it. How old were you when you, I'm so sorry you went through that. Gosh, that was, that was a lot. How old were you? I was eight years old when my oldest brother oh, died and I was gosh. 17 when uh, my other brother passed away. So it was, it was a lot to deal with at a young age for sure. How was it, how was it explained to you at age eight? You know, that's a that's a tough question, but you know, it was kind of you know framed in a way that I my brother wouldn't be around anymore and that I would not be seeing him, which was a lot to deal with at that age. I mean, being eight years old and trying to grasp the concept of death is very difficult. So, you know, having the paranormal field and looking at the possibility of life after death was a really great coping mechanism for me and something that is, you know, you know, fulfilled this lifelong pursuit and really looking into life after death. Was that something that your family had talked about before before you lost your brother, before they said, "Oh, he, he's not going to be around anymore?" Did you understand the concept of death at that age? I don't I don't know at what age, you know, our brains developed to where we can actually understand it and conceptualize it, but what was it like for you and and had your family talked about it prior to going through that? 
you know, they never talked about it prior, uh, really. Um, so it was something that was kind of just dropped on me. Mm. And it was a lot to, you know, it was a lot to take in and a lot to really think about. And uh, one big thing for me was, you know, after my brother's funeral and after he, you know, was laid to rest, I uh, spent a lot of time at the cemetery and was there every day with my mother um, visiting his gravesite and, and visiting him. And uh, that really made me think even more. It, you know, it really puts life in perspective and it really makes you think about a, a larger picture uh, that a lot of people don't really deal with at, you know, that young of an age for sure. No, most people don't. And then to do, and, and you know, suicide is another thing. Most people don't have to deal with that, especially with a loved one who is their sibling. Were there other siblings or are you the the remaining one living? I'm the youngest of seven. It's actually oh my <laughs> quite a large family. Brandon. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty wild. But uh, yeah, I'm the youngest of seven. So I still have a, you know, a brother that's uh, still living and I have, you know, three sisters. So it's it's been uh, it's been awesome, you know, and everyone's dealt with it in a different way. I think I was really the only one to look at it from this perspective. I know everyone deals with, you know, loss in different ways, and you know they do what helps them best. But this has been something that's uh, you know put me on a, a life path that's been very interesting. Oh my gosh, most certainly, yeah. I mean, it is like then the world learned about it through the TV show, but you had been on this journey this whole time when. When I think about what we typically, when children are talked to about death, it's usually in a, like a religious setting or that's sort of the first time that most kids, unless they experience what you experience, hear about death or dying or anything like that. It's usually, you know, maybe from the Bible or from a church teaching. Were you guys a religious family or not at all? You know, my parents uh, have their own beliefs and, and they practice what, you know, I, you know, their form of Christianity and they have their own belief systems. but. That was not something that was taught to me or, you know, I wasn't put in situations where I had to learn that. So it was kind of just on my own, mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, looking at different ideologies and different belief systems throughout all of the world and really taking those pieces and, you know, finding out what made sense to me and, and you know, putting together uh, my own thought process and my own ideology. So it's uh, it's been very interesting. And what does make sense to you now, given all of your research and the time that you've committed to this topic? Well, you know, I'm very much a believer in science and scientific principle. And, you know, energy is neither created nor destroyed. We know that. So our body is completely made up of energy. We're firing off neurons right now. So my question is, where does that energy in our body go when we die? And does it retain consciousness? That's the big question. And that's something I've been looking for and researching and actively going out into the field to try and find proof of that. So that's something that fuels my research and something I will con continue to look for until I find substantial proof. So what, how many years have you been doing this and devoting life to this? 17 years at this point, uh, going into the 17th year. And uh, it's, it's been amazing. You know, I've been very lucky to work with world-renowned scientist, Dr. Harry Klor, someone that he was actually the first person in history to receive two PhDs simultaneously. And the funny thing about working with him is the fact that he had a very similar life path as me. He lost a brother to cancer and he lost a brother to suicide, just like me. So it was like, you know, we have this, you know, same path. And I've been very lucky to work with someone that's such a brilliant scientist that's helped me remain grounded in scientific principles. So it's very funny how the universe works. So what do you think, what do, what do you think happens to people when they die? 
if nothing's the jury's still out okay okay you're you still know? you're still it's... actively trying to figure that out for yourself i am i am but you know i've had a handful of experiences and a handful of data and empirical evidence that suggests there's something going on but we just can't quite understand it as of yet but with the advancement of technology and a better understanding of how you know the universe works and how science works i think we'll have more answers we've explored the ocean we've explored space i think that last great frontier is really the study of life after death how did ghost hunters find you how did that partnership come about or how did it, how was it how did it come about that you would be involved in a tv show that looks at things like this well, you know, I've been researching the paranormal for many years, and I had a, an online presence uh, through my own website, but I, I also appeared on shows like The Unexplained Files on Science Channel. I was also on Ghost Adventures on Travel Channel. Uh, but I had a pretty big online presence with my research, but also through my filmmaking. Uh, I was actually at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival debuting my film Cemetery Park when I got the call about Ghost Hunters. So. It was kind of a combination of not only my online presence with my research, but also with my filmmaking as well. What are some of the common misconceptions about paranormal research from, you know, people like me or people that, you know, aren't as familiar with it? Well, you know, it's such a huge pop culture phenomenon now. It you have really so is. many movies about it, so many TV shows. And I think people watch those and take it at face value but you know one of the biggest misconceptions is that we're always doing our research in the dark or we're running around the, in the dark with night vision i don't and know brandon kinda... you're kind of in the dark right now <laughs> in a black <laughs> shirt with a black hat <laughs> yeah, just kidding that's true you got me there but uh you know a majority of our research is done during the day and conducted during the day with uh not only his you know massive historical research going through and doing site analysis speaking with eyewitnesses but uh you know what we do in these locations at night is a very small part of the bigger picture of the research and what is the research what are you looking for i'm looking for any type of environmental changes in a location that's reported to be haunted one thing that we've noticed a lot in a common trend is that in these locations where people experience ghostly phenomena or a haunting, there's always massive changes in the environmental conditions that are outside of the natural conditions. And we've also noticed that there's always barometric, barometric pressure changes that take place just before unexplained events happen. So we're trying to find empirical evidence and data that can be analyzed by a third party to really help us understand what's natural and what's something we can't explain. Okay, what like would have happened anyway, or just was a coincidence or something like that. When we spoke before on the show, I wanted to go dive deeper into this because my first TV station ever was um, in Kennewick, Washington, and it was said to have been a, a morgue, a place where people would be embalmed and processed, et cetera. And when you looked at the structure of it, it kind of made sense. I mean, it was a building that had been around forever, but some of the, the things in the rooms, it was like, okay, I could kind of see that. Um, and then we started to experience, I think what you're kind of explaining, like things being missing or all of our hairspray was always gone and we would blame each other. Like all of us ladies would say, oh, well, you know, Joan's taking my hairspray. No, it was Felicia. No, it was Jenny. And then all of us were like, no, it really wasn't me or I take mine home. And, and so little things like that or doors closing or, um, stuff happening on the scanner when um, like TV stations use scanners to detect, you know, police and stuff like that. 
it would be like that's has nothing to do with the police things like that and so we had somebody come in i have no idea if they were legit i mean because i don't know you know we were just like let's have somebody come in it was like a halloween kind of thing and they said yes there's a, a girl who's like a young girl who i don't know is still here and living what is that do you think that we were fooled <laughs> do you think we were duped do you think there's something to it you know, there's a lot of different types of research that's conducted. There's a lot of people that conduct, you know, paranormal research through psychic impressions. There's people that conduct research through going in and using devices specifically made for the paranormal that give a lot of false positives and really don't provide factual results. So it's tough to say exactly uh, if it was truthful or not without being there. Sure. Uh, but it sounds like the experiences you had are very compelling, you know, and very, you know, common and very similar to a lot of the experiences and eyewitness testimony that I've dealt with over the past. So, um, again, like I said earlier, it would have to be about going in, testing the location for the natural environmental conditions and then setting up to see if you can find any anomalies associated with that. I had another experience similar to this in college and it was actually very disturbing to me and it was uh, you used the word haunting it was haunting to me it was disturbing i didn't i didn't like it i felt very uncomfortable with it i felt very scared and i was told by um like i reached out to a couple people who again i thought were experts you really uh, you know we don't really know i don't think there's a certification for what you all do that says okay or maybe there is um but somebody told me you just need to tell this do you call them a ghost i don't know this spirit whoever it is go away, you're not welcome here, go someplace else. Is there any truth to that? Do people in your realm talk like that to sort of have these paranormal experiences leave them? You know, some people do. Um, but again, if we are looking at this from the point of view that this is a consciousness that's retained after death by, you know, a human being, uh, they have their own belief systems. They have their own ways of living life. And if they were a certain religion in life, they would probably retain that in death. So it's gonna be different per location. And uh, it's really about understanding the person's culture, understanding who that person was in the way they lived their life in order to try and find some kind of closure. So it's very tough. Uh, so there's not really a one size fits all, you know, situation or resolution to going in and clearing quote unquote uh, location, but it's really understanding who that person was in life, what their beliefs were, what their, their cultural beliefs were, and uh, trying to use that to get more answers and help that person after death. But it's really tough to say. We don't really know exactly what we're dealing with at this point. We're just trying to find answers you know, as they come. Does, when you're doing your research at all, do you ever get like creeped out or is that a disrespectful way to look at what you do? There's been a few times that's that's happened. You know, uh, Fort San New Mexico was a perfect example where you are in a building alone and you know you're alone, but it feels like it's full of people. It feels like you're being watched. It feels like there's a crowd around you. And that can be very unsettling at times because your mind goes into kind of fight or flight mode and trying to deal with that scenario because visually you can tell there's nothing there, but just the sense within yourself, you can feel that there's people uh so that could be very unsettling and that would be i think a, a a perfect scenario or a perfect situation to explain that it could be kind of unnerving at times so how did you how did you end up there explain the circumstances where you were alone in the room but not alone in the room you know well funny enough we were in there myself and brian murray who was a co-investigator on the show 
uh, were shooting down a hallway trying to capture this set apparition that the park rangers have seen for many years. And all of a sudden on the camera, you see something walk through the lobby. And so the cameraman, as well as Brian, went outside to see if someone was there. So I was left alone in the building. And uh, lo and behold, uh, not only did I have these sensations and these feelings of not being alone, but we actually captured you know, one of the most compelling pieces of footage. That's a tremendous breakthrough for the field. And what was it? Uh, it was actually the shape of a figure. Uh, it looks like a woman peeking out of a door frame. Uh, it was captured on an EMCCD camera, a very sensitive scientific piece of equipment. And to this day, our scientific consultants and third party review has not been able to explain it. Brandon, what do you say to people who are like, you've completely lost it, Brandon. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. None of this exists. This isn't real. I would say you might be right because <laughs> I struggle with that belief every sure. day. And that's what makes it tough. You know, I, I'm a natural skeptic. Um, I'm trying to find answers not only for myself, but for the public and hopefully one day the scientific community as well. But there's definitely something out there. Uh, what it is at this point, we can't say one way or another. But there's something more to life. And I think that life after death is a great possibility. And that's what's going to you know, fuel my research and continue my path. You said that your parents had practiced, I think, some some sort of religion. It sounds like it wasn't super intense in, in your home. Do you think that what you do, if, if, if a person's like listening this or, or watching this and they, they subscribe to or they believe in Christian values, but they also sort of, you know, are listening to what you're saying and thinking, I, I think there could be some truth there. Do you think those can ever be melded or aligned or uh, congruent in any way? Or are, they, are these two different ways of thinking science and Christianity or, or other religious faiths? Some of the greatest scientists that ever existed, Isaac Newton, people like that, Nikola Tesla, um, they believe that science and religion actually go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. um, it's very interesting. So I think that there's a very strong possibility that they can be one and the same. It's not to say one is right and one's wrong. I think that very well there could be a common ground that's there. So a lot of times people from certain faiths believe that anytime you're experiencing some kind of paranormal phenomena that it's demonic in nature. Uh, I wouldn't say so, you know, very rarely is there anything that's negative on that scale. But if you think of the idea of free will and retaining that free will, I mean, if you're a person, you make everyday choices and that's granted to you by a higher power, that's not just gonna go away because you pass away. That free will will stay in place, I would believe. So that may be an explanation as to why some people choose to stay and not move on. Oh, interesting. Do you, um, is a part of this pursuit perhaps finding out if either of your brothers are are here, not, not moving on? That's part of it, uh, definitely. But, I, you know, I'm always looking at the bigger picture. And, uh, you know, is life after death a possibility? And, you know, that's really the question I'm, you know, trying to find answers for. And uh, hopefully uh, before my time's up, I have more answers than questions. What kind of technology and techniques do you use as a part of this pursuit? Like, what do you take out on a ghost hunt? You know, I'm always trying to use anything that's adapted from a technical industry. Uh, a lot of times with the shows, you see specific devices that are made to try and find ghosts. I think that's very counterproductive. It produces a lot of false positives, almost chasing your own tail in a way. I want to use very sensitive scientific piece of equipment or very sensitive equipment from other industries 
and adapt that into our field. And that's because I want to go out there and collect data in the field that can be analyzed by a third party, by a professional from a technical industry that can tell us if it's something natural or something that's not natural. And I think that really takes the credibility to the next step and really helps us being taken seriously instead of making devices specifically for our own needs and our own belief system. What do you, what, what have you gained? What's your sort of second shot after having gone through the grief of losing two siblings and then diving into this? Um, how has it helped you to process? It's been a great adventure, I'll tell you that. I mean, just with Ghost Hunters alone, I investigated many states, uh, was able to go to Alaska and investigate in the dead of winter at a place that a lot of people don't get to see in their lifetime. Um, it's been a, a, a wild ride, a huge adventure, but I, I've also had some great moments of clarity as far as you know understanding what I'm looking for or trying to process that. So it's been a great adventure and I can't wait to see what happens in the future. What's the biggest life lesson that you've learned through this discovery process? That there's something bigger than myself, that's for sure. You know, it's it, it's very hard to take, you know, the ego out of the situation, doing it for yourself uh, when you're doing this. So, you know, just learning that there's something so much larger than just everyday life in existence and trying to find those answers has been, you know, pretty fulfilling for sure. I'm curious to know behind the scenes on ghost hunters, how do they find the places they're going to go? Is it like there's a forum and people say, I think this place is haunted. You guys need to check it out. That's part of it, but there's a heavy vetting system associated with that. They want to make sure that they are putting the time and the resources into a place that could be legitimate. I mean, you're not always going to find paranormal activity where you go. So they want to vet that as much as possible. A lot of times businesses or people, you know, want to make up stories to try and get recognition or some kind of uh -huh. fame. So they want to make sure they vet that and make sure that they're dealing with people that are genuine and actually having experiences they can't explain. Oh, totally. It's true. Like I think about some ghost tours that I've been on. I lived in Indianapolis and there's a whole like area and then people pay to go on these ghost tours and they tell you these stories. Do you think, are, is that just marketing or do you think there's any truth to when you go on the ghost tour, those stories that they tell? There's some truth, but then there's urban legend. You know, there's a lot of wives' tales and urban legend associated with uh, some of those ghost walks and some of these stories. But anytime you can, you know, bring up or show factual documentation and historical fact, that helps, you know, tremendously in those situations. But, you know, that's a big part of this type of research is separating fact from fiction and really finding out what's historically accurate and what's just something that's, you know, been uh, generated through the telephone game. Uh, sometimes, you know, or actually a majority of the time, there's always a kernel of truth there, but it's really finding the, the factual documentation and historical research. If you were to say, come here to CW33 and want to figure out, okay, is there, because people definitely say it about this place, is there, is somebody still here? Is some somebody still here? What would you do to find that out or determine that or try to like figure out if, you know, like, am I alone in the studio or am I not? You know, first and foremost, I would go through the building and do a site analysis and check for any faulty wiring or any type of man-made devices that could possibly be affecting people's temporal lobe activity or making people feel like they're having a said paranormal experience. And once we do those baseline readings and have an understanding of what's natural in the building, then we would set up equipment oh, wait, to try and find- Wait, what would that find... do? Hold on. What would that do? What would the faulty wiring do? 
Oh, uh, high EMF can mess with your temporal, temporal lobe activity to the point where you can hallucinate, you can get skin rashes, you can have nausea, all kinds of things. Uh, there's also uh, man-made infrasound that can really mess with temporal lobe activity. And it's uh, the effects it has on certain people is exactly like having a ghostly experience, feelings of being watched, feeling like uh, you've seen someone that's not there. So there's a lot of uh, natural explanations for the type of phenomena that's said to be ghostly. So we have to rule all of that out first before we try and find any type of data that may be something we can't explain. Well, there's a lot of wiring here. I'm sure a little bit of it's faulty. Let's just be real. <laughs> um, but so, so let's say everything's clear. You're like, okay, good. There's nothing. There's, there's no reason people should be thinking that they feel something, uh, somebody else is in the building when they're alone here. Then what would you do? We would set up equipment. We would do uh, extensive video and audio recording. We would take readings of all the environmental conditions from pressure to humidity, uh, temperature, EMF, uh, and we would continue to monitor, monitor that as long as we possibly could and see if we can find any type of anomalies associated with that. So we go through all that in the analysis, see if we can find anything that we can't explain. And if we do, we send that to a third party from a technical industry to help us understand if it's something that's natural or it's something that we can't explain. Really, really fascinating. I know you have this upcoming book, Elements of a Haunting. What can we expect in that? Uh, you can expect a lot of uh, scientific principle in the book. Uh, Dr. Harry Clore, who I spoke about earlier, wrote the foreword for the book. Uh, you will see never before, you know, never before told stories uh, behind the scenes of ghost hunters, some of the cases we worked on, some of the stuff that didn't make the show. Uh, and it also implements a, ca a classification system into ghosts and hauntings. A lot of times people say, is it intelligent or is it residual? We take it a step further with connecting history with science to tell the greatest ghost stories ever told. Oh, I don't know if I'm too creeped out to read it. I get scared very easily, but but I, at the same time, I really want to read it. So <laughs> there's my current battle. Uh, Brandon Alvis, co-author of Elements of a Haunting. Thank you so much. Give everybody the information as to how they can get in touch with you and, and contact you and get a hold of the book. Yeah, you can go to my personal website, brandonjalvis.com and uh, all the information's there. And we're very excited for people to read the book. Brandon, thank you. I found your, your journey, um, gosh, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's interesting. It's fascinating. Um, it's inspiring in the way that you have continued to continue to research. And I so appreciate the time. If you guys have any questions, post them in the Second Shot Facebook page. We will continue that. And this, as always, will air on Morning After on CW33 in Dallas weekdays, Thursdays from 10 to 11 a.m. Have a good one, everybody.